following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Uh, You'll be helped if you have a Bible uh, this morning, because we're going to look around at a few things in Luke. We're not going to take a lot of time there. So if you do have a Bible, that would be great. If you don't, that's fine. We'll be working through this passage uh, together. I would love to pray just real briefly one more time, and then we'll dive in. Our great God, as we sung and and know to be true, you are a God, the Lord God, who dwells in a high and a holy place. But also you dwell with the one who is humble and contrite in heart. So we ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. You are our strength and you are our redeemer. Amen. Well, this morning I want to begin thinking about expectations and surprises. Expectations and surprises. And if you think about surprises, they're usually things we don't expect. That's what a surprise is. There are expectations that come in and they're positive. And there are expectations or surprises that that arrive and they're contrary to what we're expecting, but not so positive. Perhaps you're visiting here for the first time this morning and you're not quite sure what to expect. It's okay. I'm not sure what to expect either. Not exactly true. Uh, We're glad you're here. Maybe you expected Matt to be up here this morning. Matt Smethers is our pastor. You're surprised that we turned to Luke instead of Mark. Uh, You'll see, I think, as we look through the passage today, that there are some things uh, that are very similar to what Matt has been showing us in Mark. Maybe this is the expectation that you've been experiencing. You filed your electronic tax return, thought you were going to get some money back. And you got a note from the IRS saying, in fact, not only you're not getting money back, but you owe some money and there's a penalty involved. That's an unexpected surprise and an unpleasant one. But maybe there's expectations that are unexpected and positive surprises. I know we have children here today, and maybe what you are expecting is summer vacation is here. This is going to be great. I cannot wait to get out of school. But a few days into the vacation, you're bored. You kind of even maybe wishing that there was some homework to do. Uh, You're missing all your friends. Or perhaps your teachers gave you a reading list for the summer. Does that still happen? Books that you're supposed to read during the summer. You look at the list and your expectation was, not again. These are not going to be interesting at all. But then you open one. You begin to read and you find yourself 
captured by the story and, and you have to say that's an unexpected surprise. This book is interesting even though it's required reading. Expectations are strange things. We like a little suspense, but too much of it, and we get antsy, we get anxious. We just wish things would go as we expected. Surprises, though, can have a way of sort of inviting us to consider a different response or to adjust our attitudes or to change our perspective, like maybe about a reading list. Let me give you a personal example. Some of you noticed that my wife is not here today. We started last week, we went home Sunday and fully expected to have this week together and I really like it when my wife's around and I'm preaching because I can talk things through with her. But her mother had an unexpected minor medical emergency, a small heart attack. And so my wife has been in North Carolina all week and she thought she would be here today. But unexpectedly, and to me it's a bad surprise, she's not here. I was chatting with some friends, and uh, when they found out that I was alone this week, they had certain expectations about what my meal preparation would be like. Was it Chick-fil-A's three times a week? Breakfast cereal, lunch, and dinner, in addition to breakfast? Those little protein bars three times a day? Cooking every day on the grill? Burgers and brats that actually was the plan, but as you know, it rained every day this week, so it wasn't burgers and brats. Um, actually, uh, the first night it was, uh, yeah, sardines in mustard sauce for the protein, um, some lettuce picked from our garden, which was quite good, a little spinach thrown in, some avocado, some olives, tomatoes, and a little olive oil on top. Not what I was expecting. And everything was pleasant except the sardines and the mustard sauce, which I found out from my mother-in-law is her favorite uh, food. So there you go. I'll send those with Rana next time. And just about now, those of you who are regular attenders have a certain expectation that I'm going to give you the main idea of the message and maybe three or four points. And you're starting to squirm a little in your seat like, come on, just tell us the main idea. I got to write it down. This is not turning out quite like we expected. Well, I'm going to give you the four sort of turning points as we look through the passage, but even though I think it's a great idea to give the main idea ordinarily first, Matt, is it okay if I give it at the end today? So a little suspense for you. You can work through the passage with me and try to think about what is the main idea of this passage. But as we read through uh, the, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector or the publican, we're going to look at four things or kind of stop at four uh, trail markers, if you will. The first is in verse 9. We're going to look at the, the audience. Can I call this the audience analysis. That's the first place we'll pause, and that's in verse 9. Then we'll, we'll look at two people in the same place at the same time doing the same thing, but two people in the same place. That's in verse 10. And then we'll look more carefully at two prayers and the two theologies behind those prayers. That's in verses 11 to 13. And then the very last little stop will be a scandalous surprise ending in verse 14. 
As the parable was read earlier by our sister, did you identify with one or, uh, one or other of the characters in that parable? You know, when Jesus uses parables, he often has, maybe there's a cluster of theological themes, but there's usually one specific response that he's hoping for, planning for. And he invites us as we listen to these parables, as we hear them even today, to identify with the people in the parable and then to respond appropriately. Now, we'll look at the audience analysis in just a minute. But as I said, if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you just to peek around for a minute at Luke's gospel. Even in the very beginning, remember verse, in chapters 1 and 2, the announcement of Jesus' birth is kind of unexpected in what's said, that he's actually going to overturn the rulers and he's going to lift up the humble. He's, he's born in a, in, a, in a barn, a stable, uh, very interesting way Luke begins his gospel. And then throughout the, the gospel of Luke, what he's showing us is he's, that, that, that the kingdom of God is full of surprises, that God saves surprising people, not the ones we would expect. The Son of Man comes to seek and save the lost, and it's a surprising group of lost people. We've seen this also in, in Mark, as Matt has led us through. If you look at chapter 15, most of us know these parables. The lost coin, the lost sheep, and the lost son. And Jesus' point there is the kingdom of God is about going after those who are lost. And when we recall the parable of the lost son, remember the one son just tells his dad to get lost, asks for the trust fund, goes off and lives riotously, finally comes to his gospel senses, goes home, and his father runs out to meet him and has a big party. For the lost guy, the, the bad one. And then the elder brother, the nice guy, he's kind of put out by all of this. And there's a story about a shrewd manager. It's kind of unexpected there. What, what's that all about? The rich man and Lazarus. Hmm. Then 10 people are healed of leprosy in chapter 17. Remember that story? There are 10 folks. Jesus cleanses them of leprosy. Only one comes back to say thank you. And it's not the Jew. It's the Samaritan. It's not at all what was expected. And in our passage today, we'll see that Jesus kind of turns things on their head here with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. So let's look at the audience analysis in verse 9. The audience analysis. And some of us work in that kind of a field, and we know that you kind of have to think about if you're going to communicate a message, your, your primary audience, and then there's secondary audience, and maybe there's even others. Well, interestingly enough, in this parable, we're told who the primary audience is. It's really clear. Look at verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Or another translation says, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then yet another one says, they looked down on everyone else and despised the other people. That's the primary audience for this parable. Now, how did Luke know this? You know, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, probably the tradition was passed down by the disciples. There were a number of people listening. Or maybe the disciples just kind of picked up on this after a while of, of wandering around with Jesus that he usually was, had, a, had an audience in mind when he gave a parable. And so I'm inviting you to think about uh, how, who it is that you would identify with. Are you in that audience? And there's other audiences as well. There's a secondary audience. 
maybe those who are sure that they're not confident of their own righteousness and know that they don't look down on anyone else. So there's the audience announcements, verse 9. Verse 10, two people in the same place at the same time, doing the same things, and in fact, the right things. Verse 10, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Two people went down to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now, we have been raised, those of us who have read the Bible a lot and been involved in Sunday school, to know that the Pharisees are the bad guys. Like, they're hypocrites. And in fact, sometimes in English, we, we even use those words synonymously. To be a hypocrite is to be a Pharisee, and to be a Pharisee is to be a hypocrite. But in Jesus' day, the Pharisees had a lot of social influence. Those listening to this parable would have thought, the Pharisee is the good guy, the tax collector is the bad guy. There's one good character, the Pharisee, and there's a bad guy here, the tax collector. Now, how do we know that? We know that because the tax collectors worked for Rome. They were considered to be traitors. They were often dishonest. They, they, they typically would charge more tax than, than they should. They were perceived as those who served Rome and not their fellow Jews. In fact, they didn't have a lot of friends other than fellow tax collectors. And Pharisees had a great deal of social influence. Now, let's look at this guy. Look what he does. He says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. But then he says, I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. You know, this Pharisee, though we, we have to kind of change our minds for a minute, would have been perceived as a really good guy. A great neighbor, actually. He's not going to raise a ruckus. He's not a partier. He, he seems to be very charitable. I mean, he's fasting a couple of days a week, which is more than the law required. He's actually giving more tithe than he was required to do. He's a great neighbor, isn't he? As long as you're not the tax collector living next door to the Pharisee, he's a pretty good neighbor. Do you see what Jesus is doing here? He's setting people up for the surprise ending. His hearers are going, oh, yeah, the Pharisee, look at that prayer. Ooh, the tax collector, the bad guy. Two people in the same place at the same time doing the same thing. Let, let's talk for a minute about the time. because It's not super clear in this particular uh, parable, but I'm pretty sure that uh, both of these people went up to the temple at the time of daily prayer, which was twice a day. And what was going on typically was a Twice a day, there was a daily burnt offering that was, was done in the temple, not in the Holy of Holies, like on a special day of atonement or anything, but inside the temple area. And so both of these men went up, and they were probably in the courtyard. They weren't like super close. Maybe the Pharisee could get close, but the tax collector could not. But the important thing is they were at the temple at the time of prayer, which was also the time of the daily sacrifice. Twice a day, this happened. And let's not forget that the temple was a smelly, loud, not-so-clean kind of a place. If you had looked at the priest's garments when they came out from offering to burnt offering, which took the whole animal, and then it was entirely consumed. They didn't eat any of the burnt offering. It was a whole burnt offering. The whole animal was consumed. It was like smoke and all kinds of stuff going on. Probably the priest's garments, which should have been clean, were battered with stub. It was, it was a messy sort of a thing. And it should have been a reminder that God is holy and righteous and his people can have no relationship with him apart from some sort of sacrificial offering. 
I mean, this was the temple, right? Both men are there in the temple at the time of daily prayer. So let's think about their prayers. Two prayers, two theologies in verses 11 and 13. The prayer of the Pharisee. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. Interesting. In the place, which should have been a reminder that you have no righteousness apart from the sacrificial system that God has set up. You have no right to come into God's presence. Instead, the Pharisee stands by himself. And if we can call this a prayer, some people say he actually prayed to himself is a better way to translate it. But he says, I thank you that I'm not like other bad people. It, it, it reads a bit like his Instagram page, doesn't it? I mean, we can see the Pharisee like snapping selfies of himself fasting twice a week, you know, with his clothes kind of worn and a forlorn, haggard face. And then, hey, here I am giving a, a tenth of all that I own and receive. And, and here I am at the daily prayer offering this prayer. Do you see me, God? Here I am. I'm here. Very interesting. Prayer selfies as a way of thanking God that we're not like other people. Hmm. Oh, yeah, let me snap a picture of that bad guy over there. I'll show you that one too, God. There's a tax collector over there. I thank you. I am not like him. I'll post that on my Instagram or social media. Yeah, this Pharisee reveals through his prayer what his theology is. He actually thinks that he has something to offer to God. He thinks he has some righteousness in himself by doing things maybe or by comparing himself with others who are worse than he is. He thinks, oh, even though he's in the temple, I can bring something to God to make my relationship with God right. Interesting. He's like the Apostle Paul and Matt led us through Philippians. Remember chapter 3? Great message that Matt gave about putting your resume on the table. Remember that? This is kind of what the Pharisee is doing. He's like, look, I'm a twice a week faster and I'm a really generous tither and I'm not like those other guys. Here it is, accept me, God. Interesting. Now this is expected behavior from a Pharisee, but what is unexpected is what comes at the end of the parable. I still think most of the people listening to the parable would have said, oh yeah, yes, that's the way to live. That's the religious life. That's what God wants from people, to, to be good and to be better than the others and to offer to God some of their own efforts at being righteous. And yet, this self-confident, self-righteous, law-observing Pharisee claims to love God, but it's very clear he doesn't love his neighbor. He looks with contempt on everyone else besides himself. And I don't think he has the love God part right either, but he certainly doesn't have the love neighbor part right. So yes, he'd be a great neighbor as long as you were a Pharisee. But if you were not, maybe not someone you want to live next to. Here I am, God. Take notice of me. That's what the Pharisee's prayer reveals. Now, let's look at the second prayer and the theology of the the 
tax collector or the publican. I hasten to say that's not someone who works at a grocery store. It's like an old word for, for tax collector. So you may hear publican, the Pharisee and the publican, but we'll call him a tax collector or a tax farmer. In contrast to the very long prayer of the Pharisee, the tax collector offers a very short prayer. Look at what he says in verse 13. God have mercy on me, the sinner. And what does he do? He stands at a distance. He beats his breast. He won't even look up. He beats his breast and says, God, have mercy on me, the sinner. Now surely Jesus wants, to, wants us to experience the contrast there. And, you know, the unexpected piece is that there's even a tax collector in the temple. You know, the original hearers probably would have thought, well, what's that guy doing there? What does he have to bring to the table? And yet, he is there beating his breast, probably a sign surely of repentance, but some people think a sign that there's so much wrong with me, it's coming out of this heart, I'm beating my heart, I wish I weren't like this. God have mercy on me, the sinner. And interestingly enough, if you uh, look at some commentaries or you, you read in the original, he actually says this, God be propitiated to me, the sinner. The passage that uh, Matt preached on last week with blind Bartimaeus is coming up in Luke. And in fact, Bartimaeus does say, have mercy on me or show mercy to me. This is different. This is be propitiated to me. That's a fancy word that means turn your anger, your wrath away from me. Cover over my sin through some sacrifice. Be appeased. Take away your judgment against me. That's what the propitiation word means. And we can call it, translate it fine here. Uh, show mercy to me, though the Holman Christian Study Bible does say, be propitiated to me. And, and it doesn't matter to me if we remember that word, but what we do need to remember is that he recognizes that apart from God's mercy, he's completely undone. That his only appeal is that God would turn away his wrath against his sin so that he could be made right with God. He has nothing to bring to the table. He's doing the kinds of things that we just sang about as a church. Cover my sins. Turn away your anger and show me your mercy. That propitiation language is also in 1 John 4, 9. Sometimes scholars will say, oh, Jesus didn't really teach uh, justification by faith. That's a Pauline thing, and Jesus wasn't really into that. He was talking about the kingdom of God. Well, I think Jesus was into it, and the parable teaches this very clearly, and Paul goes on to explain it more thoroughly. And even John, listen to this language from John the Apostle, who certainly walked with Jesus and likely heard this parable. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Now listen to this. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent Jesus Christ to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And you'll find this language in other places as well. In 1 John 2, 2, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin, but if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, when he's the, come on, propitiation for our sins. He's the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. So there's a lot in that little phrase of the publican, the tax collector. God, have mercy on me. 
very different from the selfie publishing Instagram post of the Pharisees' prayer. So let's think about the theology behind the tax collector's prayer. And again, we've sung this and we've recited it in our statement on justification. God is holy and righteous. Here I am in the temple. Sacrifice is going all the time. Reminds me that I need, I need righteousness from outside myself. I know that I'm a wicked sinner. I'm not a good person. I need God to intervene on my behalf. If there's any righteousness for me, it'll come as God propitiates himself to me as he shows me mercy. I don't have anything to show. I, I, I'm a desperately needy sinner. The sinner is actually what he says, not a sinner. So two prayers that reveal two different theologies. One is, here I am, God. I'm only too aware that I need a Savior. If you don't save me, I am undone. And let's think about that. The tax collector was an outcast. He was despised in society. His only friends would have been other tax collectors probably. And here he comes, stands off by himself, beats his breast, doesn't even look up in humility and says, God, be propitiated to me, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Atone for my sins. That sacrifice that just occurred, make it real for me. That, that smell that's going up, I need something, someone to intervene for me. I'm undone apart from your mercy and the atoning sacrifice of Christ. Now, who are you identifying with this morning? Pause a minute. Just, you know, is it, you feel like, oh yeah, uh, the tax collector, that's how I pray. Or actually, uh, sometimes I do try to push my resume across the table and I think I'm actually a pretty good person. Um, well, let's think about the Pharisees' theology again for just a minute. What the Pharisee says in his prayer is, the temple, all the sacrificial stuff, <laughs> tax collectors might need that. Not me. <laughs> I don't need that stuff. I'm just glad that I'm not like the people who need a Savior, need all this sacrificial stuff. Look at me. I keep the law plus do these other things. Now, I wonder if anybody here today thinks like this. Ah, Christianity, trusting in Christ. Some people may need that. Like bad people probably need that. Not for me. I, you know, that stuff that God did in sending His Son and dying on the cross and rising again, that's for other people who need that. Not me. Like, I'm good with God. I want you to hear Jesus saying, be very careful about that. You will not go home justified if that's what you believe. There's probably no worse sin anyone could commit than to say to God, I don't need what your Son has done for the world. Let that sink in. doesn't matter how many good things you think you've done. To say to God, who at tremendous expense to Himself, who planned this before the foundation of the world, orders all history so that He can send His Son to be the Savior of all who will turn and trust in Him. And you say, thank you so much. I don't need that. That's for other people like the tax collector. 
That is a dangerous place to be, friend. If that's how you came in to this building this morning, I pray that you would leave thinking much more like the tax collector. I desperately need a sinner. I need a savior. I am the sinner. God, show me your mercy in Christ. Tonight we'll hear from Psalm 32, and we've already read Psalm 51. As I read this part of Psalm 51, the prayer that we read before, you tell me, does this sound more like the tax collector or the Pharisee? Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Now, how is it possible that the Pharisee, who surely had studied the Old Testament, could have read Psalm 51 again and again and again and offer this kind of prayer? Something for us to ponder. When we listen to David's prayers, and we'll hear a great one tonight from our brother Kyle, they, they sound a lot more like the tax collector's prayers or his short prayer, not like the Pharisee's. I think the Pharisee said, is, means something like this. God, thank you. I'm not like David who knew himself to be a sinner, confessed his sin and received forgiveness because of your great mercy. David, he needed forgiveness. Me, not so much. When and if I need your mercy, I will let you know, God. Hmm. It's hard to overlook the tax collector's stumbly, bumbly little six-word, I think, prayer, God have mercy on me, the sinner. Okay, so two people in the same place at the same time, doing the same thing, praying prayers with very different theologies. Again, we're not in tune totally with how the original audience would have heard this, but up to verse, what are we, verse 13? Yes, up to verse 13, the, child is, the crowd is cheering on the Pharisee. Yes, good, good people. This, this Jesus stuff, it's for the good people in the world. The Pharisee, he's got it. What tax collector, what's that all about? Asking for mercy. So Jesus has to kind of clarify what's really going on here. Look at verse 14. The surprising ending that's intended to sting the primary audience. Those who were confident in their own righteousness and looked down on others. He says, I tell you that this man, the tax collector, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. It's a scandalous, stinging surprise of an ending. It's not what anyone would have expected. And I want us to feel the weight of that as we interact with this passage here at the end. The gospel is good news for bad people. The gospel is good news for bad people who humble themselves and trust in God for salvation from sin and judgment. If you're looking for a main point, maybe that was it. Let me say it again. The gospel is good news for bad people. 
who humble themselves and trust in God alone for salvation from sin and judgment. I tell you that this man, the bad guy, rather than the other, the Pharisee, went home justified before God. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now, Matt did a great job of explaining what justified means, so I'll just encourage you to go back this afternoon and look at our, our church's statement of faith on justification. Um, the main thing to, to note as we read through this is Jesus tells this parable, the primary audience, remember, is those who are confident in their own righteousness and look down on others. And he ends it by saying, the one who had zero confidence in his own righteousness, who knew that he could not justify himself, that only God could justify him by doing something outside of himself, not outside of God, but outside of the tax collector, the righteousness that we need to be justified, we do not have. That's the whole point of this parable. And old theologians used to call it alien righteousness. It's not, there's nothing in us. It has to come from outside of us. And the tax collector seemed to understand that. So we're justified by faith in Christ alone and what he's come to do. Now, in this parable, Christ had not yet, uh, he's, he's living the perfect life, but he not yet offered his life as a sacrifice for sinners. This was before then. But we read the Bible as Christians. And so we know that while there was a burnt offering going on twice a day there, that now that Jesus has offered the once and for all perfect sacrifice, there's no need for that anymore. But the same sort of attitude needs to prevail. What, what Christ has done once and for all in sacrificing his life for sinners, we need that applied to us. That's the only way that God will turn his wrath away from sinners. So for us to pray, God, be propitiated to me, is to say, make what Jesus has done mine. And when we do that, we're justified in a moment, immediately, as Matt has said. All right, let's uh, take a few minutes here at the end and try to think about um, how we should live differently. Again, as we work through this thing about who do you identify with? I think there's something here that may be surprising to, to a few of you that we can learn about communication from Jesus using parables. You know, I, I, it, there, there may be occasions when Jesus gets into arguments with his opponents, um, but a lot of times he just kind of throws out these really cool stories with a surprise ending, and he expects the Holy Spirit will take that truth and that some people will be converted. Just by this short parable, people have been converted. But it's not an argument as we would understand it. It's a different kind of persuasion. So maybe there's something we could learn from the way Jesus persuades very creatively. You know, it's not a syllogism. It's not a logical thing per se. It's, hey, let me tell you a story about two people. And there's a huge contrast here. And he waits to the end, and then he says, and you know what? It's not the one you thought that was justified. It's the bad guy. And people scratch their heads and go, huh, interesting. So perhaps that has some application for us as we share the gospel with people. What about your attitudes towards others? You know, I think Jesus is indirectly teaching us that holding others in contempt and looking down on other people created in God's image is not loving our neighbors. And we can sometimes forget that every human being is created in God's image. And it's not proper for us who are followers of Jesus to compare ourselves with others. That doesn't, not what we do. 
And if you're an unbeliever here today, you're not yet a Christian, it doesn't do you any good to compare yourself with other people either. There's always going to be somebody who's worse than us and better than us, morally, ethically, uh, athletically, academically, relationally. That's not how it works. So we don't want to be the kind of people who are comparing ourselves with others. And so if you find yourself at times looking down on others, then remember this parable and ask God to have mercy on you and to forgive you for that and ask him to give you um, the love of Christ, which we're seeing again and again in Mark, and we see it here, that Christ loves the most unlikely of people. The very people that everyone else looks down on are the ones he loves. Oh my goodness, how much more should, should we be like that than those around us who are looking for ways to polarize and marginalize and show contempt or look down on others. Let's be the kind of people who uh, have the mind of Christ about everyone and who gladly celebrate the image of God in all people. So again, let me ask you, who did you identify with in this parable? You know, I think there's two challenges we face as we try to preach the gospel to one another. And they're both kind of illustrated here. I think at times I can identify with the Pharisee and at times I can identify with the tax collector. But here's the struggle. The struggle is sometimes to admit that we're wrong. That our brother or sister brings us a challenging correction. Maybe they've identified an area of sin in our lives. And we're, we're like the Pharisee. We're protesting our innocence. We don't want to admit that we're wrong. Well, I might need a Savior for some of these things, but, but not for that. Well, maybe we do need a Savior for that. Uh, it, it, it can be challenging when we're confronted with our own sinfulness, thoughts, words, and deeds, things we do and we don't do, to actually stop protesting our innocence and admit that we're wrong. That's the way forward. That's the only way to find grace is to agree with God. And that's what the tax collector does in a sense. Yeah, I definitely need your mercy, God. Have mercy on me, the sinner. So if the Holy Spirit is bringing conviction, brothers and sisters are coming to you with a gentle and kind and persistent and patient sort of corrective attitude, stop protesting your innocence. I mean, it's, it's a good thing. That's, the gospel is good news for bad people. And when someone shows us a sin, they're saying, there's this bad thing in you. The only hope is Jesus, so don't, why wouldn't we want to say, that's right, have mercy on me, God, a sinner. But the other part of it that can be a struggle as we preach the gospel to each other, and both of these things, I think, are preaching the gospel, two sides of the same struggle. When we do turn from our sin and ask for God's mercy, it's done. As our brother prayed a few minutes ago, it's done. We are forgiven. That's it. Wow. That sin is forgiven? Yes, that one, and this one, and that one, and this one, and that one. They're all forgiven in Christ because the righteousness we need, we don't have. But Jesus has already provided that for us. He lived a perfect life in our place. And we get that credited to us when we're justified by faith. You see those two challenges when we're sharing the gospel? Sometimes we're sharing with someone we need to help them realize, look, you are forgiven. You've confessed that sin. Jesus forgives you. He's died on the cross for that sin. Be free. 
And sometimes we need to help people realize, I think you're protesting your innocence here. You'd be better off just admitting <laughs> that, that this is a sin and, and receive God's forgiveness and confess it and move on. Because if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the propitiation for our sins. One more thing to note here, trying to think about how this makes a difference in our lives. It's easy to overlook the fact that the Pharisee's prayer was sincere. It was authentic. He really, apparently, believed this stuff about himself. What he believed about God was sincere and authentic. It was real. And it was wrong. Desperately wrong. Dangerously wrong. So maybe you're here this morning and, you know, what you believe about God doesn't line up at all with what Jesus is telling us in this parable, but you say to yourself, but, but that's what I really believe, you know, so my parents taught me or my friends think is right or everyone at school says this is, this is right and I'm really sincere. Let me, let me just warn you, that doesn't matter to God how sincere you are how right you think you are. The Pharisee thought he was right. And I think most of the people listening to the parable until Jesus got to verse 14 also thought the Pharisee was right and he was wrong. Desperately, dangerously wrong. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, listen to what the Bible says. Let God show you where your ideas are wrong, however sincere, sincerely and authentically you hold them. If you enter this room today with a wrong understanding of God and yourself and what salvation is and what Christ has done, humble yourself, as he says, and, and let God in his word correct where you are wrong. I think that's in part what he means there when, you need, when he says we should humble ourselves or the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Only one of these people was really facing the truth about himself. And it's the surprising one. It's the tax collector, the wicked, traitorous, doesn't have any friends, probably steals half of his income through this tax system. He's the one who's facing the truth about himself. And as we finish, I want us to reflect on this. As I was working through the passage, I asked myself this question, well, who then can be saved? Can a Pharisee be saved? sure doesn't sound like it when we, we read and think about the parable. But then we remember what Matt taught us in Philippians 3, what Paul wrote there. Guess who Paul was? A Pharisee, just like this. Just like this. He becomes the great uh, apostle to the Gentiles. So can a Pharisee be saved? Absolutely. How are they saved? when they come to an understanding like Paul did, that they have no righteousness of their own, but only in Christ, and putting their faith and trust in Him and what He's done and who He is and what He's promised. Well, can a tax collector be saved? Wow, those are bad people. Actually, you know what? There's not a good person in this story except one, Jesus. Everyone else is a bad person. They don't measure up to what God requires. But can a tax collector be saved? Well, cast your eyes forward to chapter 19. Huh. 
An interesting little fellow, his name is Zacchaeus. Remember the short guy who goes up in the tree? Guess what his profession was? A tax collector. Unless we wonder, is Jesus saying it doesn't matter how you live after you're justified, you can just do whatever you want, you can sin so that grace may abound? Well, let's read on in Luke. This tax collector repented. He, was, he had this great part and he gave back what he had stolen. Interesting. So, I don't know who you identify with this morning. There's sort of two things going on here. How could God ever accept me? I'm, I'm so much like the tax collector, and actually I'm like the Pharisee too. How could he accept me? I'm too bad. I don't deserve it. Well, there's truth in that statement. You don't deserve it. But the good news, as we said, the main idea here is that the gospel is good news for people who know they don't deserve righteousness and put their faith and trust in Christ. The worst situation anyone could be in is to think, I'm so good, the Lord will accept me. I deserve his acceptance. That's not the gospel. So this parable reminds us to ask God for mercy, to be the kind of people who do not protest their innocence, who freely admit when they are wrong, particularly to God who knows everything there is about us. When we feel unacceptable to God, let's remember this parable. If you only knew what I did this week or thought this week, God, oh, well, just think about that a minute. He already does know. That's why he sent Jesus Christ. When we feel that, we can only pray this. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And as soon as we pray that, we go home justified. Just like this tax collector did. We have a glorious gospel shown in countless ways to us in Scripture. Let's make sure we announce that to one another. Our God is so incredibly kind and merciful to His people. He longs to be merciful to so many people in the world. He's done everything needful that we might find acceptance with Him. Everything. There's nothing we can add to Christ's work. If only a person will pray from the heart, God, have mercy on me through Christ. I know I'm a sinner and I need Christ. I've rebelled against you. I can't find acceptance with you unless you cover my sins. In other words, this is the prayer that when offered from a humble heart always finds acceptance with God. Oh God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for Jesus, the master teacher, our great Savior, Lord and King of all, friend of sinners, seeker and saver of the lost, the one who came to, to, to serve and not to be served, the ransom for many. What a great Savior we have. Lord, remind us today how much how much love you show us in Christ, how merciful you have been to us in the gospel. And may we preach and proclaim it gladly and joyfully to others. And may you apply your word to any who are not yet your people. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.